Well, there's no shortcuts to sanctification, is there? There's no cutting corners in growing in Christ-likeness. Some of you may have, uh, at some point in time in your life, not that any of you out there look like you need to, but you may have been on a diet at some point, right? And diets are, are great as long as you can build in what on a diet? A cheat day, right? We like the cheat day, or if you are, are somebody who goes to the gym, you like to have a, a day off, in, unless you're just a, a freak physical specimen. Uh, if you're anything like me, we've got a treadmill in the garage. My wife and I always kind of uh, consult together. Okay, so when are we going to not run this week, right? So you like a day off. You like to be able to just stop and, and recuperate and rest. Or if you're on a diet, you like to be able to sit down and have that uh, that ice cream or that Snickers bar and just not feel bad about it because you know what? You've put in some good work already this week. You deserve a day off. Well, when it comes to sanctification, there is no such thing as a cheat day. There's no such thing as a day off when it comes to our pursuit of Christ's likeness. And I was, I was reading through Second Samuel chapter 21 and the events therein, I was struck about the, the idea of just the, the sanctified life because in this chapter, it really does kind of run the gamut from an example of failing in the sanctified life at the very beginning to then the middle of the chapter is dealing with the, the consequences of that failure. And then at the end, we see four men who really model what we should all be after, and that is the just zealous and relentless uh, pursuit of God's glory. And that's, that's the aim of a sanctified life. That's the, the target of a sanctified life. There's no way in a, our lives as believers for us to have that you know, worldly Snickers bar, so to speak, and just kind of sweep it under the rug and say, hey, it's no big deal. We always need to be on our A game. We always need to be pursuing our spiritual well-being, our spiritual fitness, our sanctification. As we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21, to really be able to understand what's going on, we need to actually jump all the way back to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 33, verses 52 and 53, which I know you have memorized, but just in case you don't, let me refresh your memory on these uh, key verses that are so important to uh, our understanding of what's going on in 2 Samuel 21. It says in Numbers chapter 33, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. So God is speaking to Moses. And then this message would have eventually been translated to who? Joshua. And the command that's given, it's not a suggestion. It's not a, a, hey, you know what, this is what I think would be a good idea, but you do what you want to do. No, this is a, a command that's given from God to Moses and then eventually to Joshua as Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. And that is that everybody that's currently living in the promised land in Canaan, you, Israel, need to drive out. And in fact, not only is it a command given, but there's an assurance given that the Lord promises, I will drive them out from before you. If you will obey me, I will go as, as hornets in, in front of you, and I will drive them out from the land, and you will come in, and you will enter in, and you will take possession. Well, we come to Joshua, the book of Joshua, which we've been reading recently in our daily Bible reading, and Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, and we know the story of Jericho, and how he walked around the walls, and, and they all fell down, and we were just there in Israel, and I can tell you that there's nothing there at all. Even today, the, the tell of Jericho, the hill of Jericho, is the biblical foundation that's there, and there's nothing. 
In fact, our guides even told us that they used to go and they used to point to stones that had been unearthed. And they used to say, these are the stones of the walls of Jericho from the time of Joshua. But since then, those stones have been dated prior to Joshua. And they've had to repent from that and say that they were misleading their tour guides, their tour groups that were there. But when we were there, they, they said there, there's nothing there. Why? Because the Bible said that there would be nothing left, that the city was completely destroyed. And then after that, there was a curse put on any who would build on the city. Well, guess what, guys? Today, that hill, that city is still absolutely barren with no evidence of the biblical Jericho still in existence today because the, the city was utterly destroyed under the judgment of God as Israel was entering into the promised land. So that was their first stop. Well, news eventually spread throughout the area. And there was a group called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites saw what happened at Jericho. And they had heard about this people, this nation, Israel, and heard about how God had delivered them out of Egypt with the, the plagues and through the exodus and everything else. Word had gotten to them that this was a people not to be trifled with, that their God was a mighty and powerful God, and that the Gibeonites had found out that they were in the way of the, the plan that their God had for them to possess the whole land. So you guys know the story, but the Gibeonites go to Israel. They go to Joshua, and they go in, in a pretty shrewd and cunning way. They take stale and old bread with them from their homes and they take their worn out clothes and their worn out sandals and they take wineskins that were old and, and no longer useful anymore and they, they fill those with wine and they take those on the trip with them, which was just a, a short journey. But they go to the Israelites and they pass themselves off as sojourners. They say, hey, we're just like you. We're journeying through this land. Hey, let's, let's strike a covenant since we're both foreigners to this area. Uh, just promise that you won't do any harm to us and, and we'll be your servants. Well, it says in the text there in Joshua chapter 9, and it's a tragic event when it says that Joshua did not consult the Lord in this matter, but entered into an agreement with the Gibeonites, entered into this covenant with the Gibeonites. Well, then finds out what happened. But after that, says in chapter 9, verse 20, after he realizes that he had been deceived, he says, this we will do to them. We will let them live, lest the wrath, the wrath of who? The wrath of God, be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. God takes vows and oaths and covenants incredibly seriously. We just read in the daily Bible reading this morning, maybe you, you haven't gotten there, you'll get to it later, of Jephthah. And you remember Jephthah's foolish vow, his tragic vow. After beating the Ammonites, he said, God, I will offer to you the first thing that comes out of my house. And when he returns home, the first thing that comes out of his house was what? His daughter. And there's speculation, well, maybe he just committed her to a, a convent for the Israelites, right? And, and No, it says that he did according to his vow. And his vow that he would offer the first thing that came out of his house as a burnt offering to the Lord. And so the Lord takes our vows and our oaths and our covenants incredibly seriously. What does all this have to do with chapter 21? Well, let's pick up in verse 1. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put who? The Gibeonites to death. So at some point in time in the reign of Saul, and we don't know when because it's not recorded in 1 Samuel 4, but at some point in time, Saul had infringed upon this covenant that Israel had made with the Gibeonites. Saul had put some of them to death, had executed them, had transgressed and broken the covenant that Israel had made with the Gibeonites. 
And now as a result, the, the hand of God's judgment and discipline was on the house of Israel with this famine. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that, that Israel was dependent upon rainfall for their well-being. They need the rainfall in order to turn a good crop. In fact, still today, they need a good rainfall in order to turn a good crop. The, the region of Israel is incredibly agricultural. It's their, their main source of, of economy there. Well, at this time, it was not just their main source of economy, but their main source of well-being. And so after one year, you may have been able to write that off and say, okay, this was just a down year with the rain, and so this was a rough time. Two years, you're thinking, okay, this is, this is particularly difficult, but you know what? Maybe things will turn around. Third year is a, a charm, right? But then after three years, three consecutive years of, of famine and the rain being withheld, finally David says, something else is going on here. So David seeks the Lord and says, Lord, what, what is it that's, that's happening, that your hand of judgment and discipline is upon us? And the Lord points to Saul's breaking of this covenant with the Gibeonites. This had been some time prior. In fact, apparently it was sometime even earlier in Saul's reign, not even towards the end of Saul's reign that this took place. Saul broke the covenant, put the Gibeonites to, Gibeonites to death, and then he just continued on with his life. He just continued on and, and thought to himself, you know what, let bygones be bygones. And the rest of Israel did as well. They were taking this infringement, this sin, this rebellion against God by the breaking of his covenant, and they were sweeping it under the rug, so to speak. Thinking, you know what, it's, it's in the past, it's forgotten, we're no worse for the wear. It doesn't look like God's done anything about it, so let's just press on. But what we realize is we realize that there's no such thing as sweeping our sin under the carpet. There wasn't then with Israel, and there's not today with us either. We always need to deal properly with our sin. It's our first point this morning. It's this. Remember that all sin demands reconciliation. Remember that all sin demands reconciliation. Reconciliation, that we need to be restored. We need to be brought near again to the Lord. You may be objecting right now in your mind and thinking about, yes, but, but what about the cross? Didn't Jesus say on the cross, it is finished? Aren't all of my sins, past, present, and future, totally atoned for by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? The wrath of God against my sin is completely poured out and exhausted on Jesus. And I would tell you yes and amen to that. I, I would 100% agree with that. However, that does not mean that your sin today doesn't have negative consequences with your present relationship with God. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. It's the verse that says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner treating her as the, the weaker vessel. And then it goes on to say, lest your prayers be hindered. And so there Peter is writing to us as men saying, if you're not living in obedience in the way that you should love your wife, if you are sinning in your relationship with your wife, it's going to hinder your prayer life with God. That sin needs to be dealt with, needs to be reconciled. Or how about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, which says, My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, for the, dis the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines his children. 
And so what we see here is that, yes, at the cross, our sins are totally paid for, atoned for, the wrath of God completely satisfied at the cross. Amen and yes to that. However, your sin that you commit today in this life or the sins that you've committed in the past that you have not confessed, they have negative impacts on your relationship with the Lord today. They can drive a wedge in the intimacy of your walk with Jesus today. They can hinder your prayer life today. They can draw the the discipline of the Lord in your life today. And so you think about your life right now, and maybe you're under the discipline of the Lord for some sort of sin that you've swept under the carpet, just like Saul thought he had swept this transgression against the oath that he had made with the Gibeonites, that Israel had made with the Gibeonites under the carpet. Forgot about it. Let bygones be bygones and moved on. Maybe it's the fight that you had with your wife last week. And time and space have led to it being resolved, but you still haven't dealt with it with the Lord the way that you need to deal with it. But you've thought, you know what? Because there's peace at home right now, it's no big deal. Let's just move on. Or maybe it's as you're preparing your tax return, the numbers that you fudged in order to see that refund go up or maybe in some cases in order to see that red number go down. And you think, you know what, it's, it's in the past. Plus it's, it's the government. They don't need my money anyways. And so it's no big deal. We sweep it under the rug. We, we move on and we don't deal with it with the Lord the way we need to. Or maybe it's the corners that you cut recently on that project that you had at work in order to save the money company, in order to make yourself look better in the eyes of the, the boss. And you think, well, you know what, it's, it's good for my company, so why does it matter if I compromised my integrity in this matter? And, and you've swept it under the rug, and you think it's, it's no big deal. Let bygones be bygones. Or maybe it's the images that you were looking at on the computer or on the phone this week that you know were images that were of, of women that aren't your wife, and now some time has passed, and you haven't tripped up in the last three or four days, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? It's no big deal. Grace, the cross exists, so let's let bygones be bygones, but you haven't dealt with your sin. Again, these are the things that can bring the hand of God's judgment and discipline in our lives. And so it may be that you're sitting there at work and you're up against setback after setback after setback. You're being passed over for promotions. You're having conflict with your coworkers. You're thinking, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Or maybe it's with your, your finances. You feel like you can't gain traction. You can't get back in the black. You're, you're continually accruing more and more debt, though you're trying to be wise in the way that you're spending your money. The bills keep piling up and you don't know, Lord, what's going on? Why can't I get to a place where I feel like I'm responsible and I've got a good foundation under me financially? Maybe it's your relationship with your wife. You continually have these petty arguments and fights and disagreements with her. And it seems like a weekly thing that there's always this underlying tension with her. There's no intimacy there anymore. And you're thinking to yourself, God, why can't I have a marriage like this person's marriage? Or why doesn't my marriage get better? Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. You think to yourself that there's so much disagreement there. My kids rebel against my authority. My kids disagree with me. Or maybe it's for some of you who have older kids. My kids don't want anything to do with me. Lord, why? Why don't I have a better relationship with my kids? Or maybe it's your relationship with God. It feels sterile. It feels dry. It feels distant. It feels like you're just going through the motions. And you say, God, why doesn't there feel like I've got a closer relationship with you? Well, in these situations, I'm not saying in every single situation like this, but in some of them, it may be that the Lord's hand of discipline is on your life because you have...
haven't dealt with the way that God wants you to deal with it. And God's hand of discipline is on your life because he wants you to reconcile with him and to deal with that sin. What does it look like to deal with that sin? Well, what did it look like for David? David went to the Gibeonites and said, how can we make this right? In fact, it's interesting the word he uses in verse 3. He says, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement? How shall I satisfy the, 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 the broken relationship between us? Your wrath against us. What, what needs to be done? And initially the Gibeonites say, well, don't throw your money at us. Money's not going to do it. And David says, no, but, but what can we do? And they say, well, give us seven of the descendants of Saul. Seven, the number of completeness, the number of wholeness, right? Saul sought to wipe out the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites are saying, give us seven of Saul's offspring. We're going to hang them at Gibeah of Saul. And Saul's hometown as a symbol that what he did was wrong, that what he did was not right. And now they are paying the penalty for it. Give us seven of his sons. And so David does that. He gives them seven of the sons. And this is in accordance with the Old Testament law. A, a life wrongly taken demand the, the life of the person who took that life. Well, thankfully for us as believers, when we transgress God, we can point back to the cross. And this is where we look to the cross and say, praise God and thank you for the substitutionary death of Jesus on my behalf. That God's wrath is totally satisfied against me. That I don't have to take seven of my family members and string them up over the, the, an overpass off of the five. Because my Savior was strung up for me 2,000 years ago. But like we've been talking about, that doesn't mean that there's no ramifications to our sin that don't need to be deal with, dealt with. We need to deal with our sin. We need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do we need to do to make things right here? And the answer to that is twofold. It's confession and it's repentance. It's confession and it's repentance. Confession always costs us something, doesn't it? Even just think about our earthly relationships. To confess maybe to a coworker, to say, you know what, I haven't been a very good witness for Christ. It's a hard thing to do. Or to confess to your wife that you've sinned against her, that you've been wrong. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I don't know how many times I've been in a, a conflict. I don't want to say that. It makes it sound like my marriage is horrible. Let me back that up. There have been times that I've been in conflict with my wife and I've thought to myself, you know what, I'm right this time. I'm going to come out on top. And you guys know the story. 10 or 15 minutes later, you're like, how did she do that? I'm wrong in this situation. And then you're left there thinking to yourself, I've got to go confess. But then the flesh is there going, don't do it. There's a way to save this. You can turn it around again, just like she did. And you just wrestle with your flesh until you're like, no, I need to go confess. That's, that's hard. It costs us. It costs us our pride. It costs us our self-worth, or to confess that to your kids that you discipline them out of anger, to confess to your accountability partner that you failed this week. None of those circumstances are at the top of the list of things that we would like to do. But I wonder how, how many of us feel that same weight when we go to confess our sin to the Lord? I would venture a guess to say that for many of us, it's easier for us to confess our sin to the Lord than it is for us to confess our sins to our wives or confess our sins to another brother in Christ. But I don't think that should be the case. That weight that we feel when we confess to our wives, that sense of I've let her down, I've disappointed her. We should feel that when we go to confess our sin to the Lord. It shouldn't be a flippant, casual thing that we do. 
Again, we can be thankful that we don't have to give our lives for our sin because Christ gave his life. But we do need to be quick when we find sin in our lives. When a brother comes alongside or when we're made aware and said, oh yeah, that's a sin that I thought I, I just swept under the rug. We need to go back and we need to say, God, this is a sin I'm going to bring to the light, John chapter 3, right? I'm going to bring to the light, John chapter 1, sorry, and I'm going to confess it to you. And I'm going to repent from this and say I'm done with it. All sin demands that reconciliation. This was a high cost to pay. Seven sons of Saul had to give their lives. But it was a high cost to pay in particular for one person. And that's this, this lady, Rizpah, that we find in the text. Rizpah had two sons that were executed. Armoni and Mephibosheth. Now, a verse before that, in verse 7... It said, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. There's two Mephibosheths in view in this passage. This isn't a typo. This isn't a mistake. You have Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, but then you have Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, whom Rizpah bore to Saul. And so two of Rizpah's sons, Armoni and Mephibosheth, are part of the seven that are executed and hung. And look what happens in verse 10. After the execution, it says, then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them. Upon who? Upon the bodies of her sons from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. So again, you have Rizpah, the, the mother of these two, two of the seven who were executed for Saul's transgression of this covenant, two of the sons that were executed to make atonement for what Israel had done wrong, to relieve the famine, and, and they're strung up, and then they're left there. And they're left there, it says in the text, from the beginning of harvest until the rain came. Why until the rain came? Because when the rain returned, that was a symbol that God had accepted this as an act of atonement for the transgression of the covenant that Israel made with the Gibeonites. God had withheld the rain, which for three years brought famine to the land. So when the rain came back, it was a sign to Israel that, that God was pleased with what had taken place, that this was right, that things had been made right between uh, Israel and, yes, the Gibeonites, but more importantly, between Israel and the Lord. And so the bodies were left up as a display of what had been done and what was wrong until the rain came. And you have Ritzbah, the mother of two of these men, who's there with her sackcloth, which would have been a symbol of her mourning. And she's there day after day, and we don't know for how long because the text doesn't state, but she's there as her son's bodies are hung in the heat of the day in the sun, and they're not getting any better if you get the picture. And the text even goes more than that and says that she has to drive away the scavenging birds from her son's bodies and the scavenging animals that want to come and, and pick apart their bones. It's a tragic scene. It's a scene that even moves David to the point that David goes and takes the bodies down and then he even goes and, and he gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan and the other sons who were hung on the wall of Bethshan that were in Jabesh Gilead and he brings them back and he honors them in burial. But I want us to, to, to zoom in on Rizpah for a moment. On the sobering reality of what was going on, what she was doing. 
mourning, watching her son's bodies decay before her, smelling the aroma of death, driving the wild animals around day after day after day with no end in sight. It's a heavy picture for us. It's a weighty picture for us. And it should remind us of the tragedy and the cost of our sin. Because that's what produced this scene. Was Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. That's what led to this this sacrifice of these seven men being hung on the cross. And led us to see this mother who no longer had her children weeping and mourning and defending her son's bodies from the scavengers. It's traceable back to our sin. It's our second point this morning. It's this. We need to feel the weight of the fall. Feel the weight of the fall. We were in Israel for the last 10 days, uh, got back last Thursday. And while we were there, it's, it's a country that's beautiful, but it's also a country where you're continually reminded of, of the tragedy of the fall of mankind. For instance, we went up to Masada and we were at the, the fortress of Masada, which was inhabited by the Maccabees during the revolt. Well, the Romans came and laid siege and the Romans brought their battering rams up and, and battered through the, the gates and lit the gates on fire. And then that evening they went back down to their camps because they knew the, the battle was over, that they were going to take the, the fortress the next day. But that evening, what the, the residents of Masada decided was that they didn't want to fall into the hands of the Romans alive. And so the head of every household went to his home there in the fortress of Masada and executed his wife and his children. And then these men gathered back together and they drew lots to see who would be the last man alive, who would kill the, the other men and then take his own life. So when the Romans came back up the ramp the next day, they found two women and two children alive and that's it. The rest of over 900 men, women, and children were dead when they arrived there. Or we went to the Herodium, which was the palace of, of Herod that overlooked the Temple Mount so he could keep an eye on what was going on in Israel. And you're reminded about the man who lived there in such opulence and such luxury. The man who led to the slaughter of the innocents after he found out that there was one that was born king of the Jews. And you're reminded again of the, the fall of man and the tragedy of our sinfulness. Or as we're in Israel and the text messages are coming in because even today you're reminded of it because there's rockets being fired from the Gaza Strip towards Tel Aviv or rockets being fired towards different parts of Israel. And then the, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, responds with their attacks as well. And you're reminded of the fall of man. But the thing that struck me the most while I was there and that pressed in on me, this idea of the weight of the fall the most was being at the sites where my Savior was before he went to the cross. Being in Gethsemane getting an opportunity to, to preach inside the cave where Jesus was with his disciples on that last night, where he left his disciples in that cave and went a short distance away to, to pray and to agonize over the cross in front of him, to be there and to think that he was there that night. Or to go to, literally, it's called the sacred pit. It's the pit where he was kept overnight as he was awaiting his execution. And to be inside that pit and to look up at the hole through which he would have been lowered down into that pit with his body bleeding and broken after the, uh, the, the flogging and beating he'd received. Or to go to the place where he was beaten and flogged and to see the stones that he stood on where he was chained to the post as his back was flayed open by the whips. 
or to go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre and to see part of the rock that was part of the, the Mount Calvary where the cross was erected. Those were the moments where the weight of my sin pressed in most heavily upon me, where the weight of the fall was felt most tangibly. As we see Ritzba, the reason why our author includes this section is because he wants us to feel the tragedy. He wants us to feel the sorrow. He wants us to understand the grave nature of transgressing God's law, of breaking God's law. So I want to ask us this morning, how often do we feel that over our own sin? How often do we mourn over sin? I think it's easy for us to mourn from a 30,000 foot view over some of the big sins, right? We mourn over abortion, over babies being murdered. We mourn over homosexuality and the, the perversion of marriage. We mourn over murder. We mourn over these wars and famines and everything else. And we, we mourn over those things. And it's easier for us to get behind that and to say, wow, what a fallen and broken world that we live in. Lord Jesus, come quickly. But what about your lying, your lust, your anger, your greed, your covetousness, your, your road rage? your ingratitude, your idolatry? What about divorce? What, what about these things? Do we mourn the same way over those? Do you daily feel the weight of your sin in such a tangible way? Reminded of the cross, the way that we, as we read this, are reminded of this, this mother before her two sons as their bodies are decaying and we're reminded of the cost of Saul's sin. Are you daily reminded of the cost of your sin? The cost of the cross. Think about our entertainment industry for just a, a moment and how eager they are to deaden us to sinfulness. I mean, you go on Netflix. Netflix original entertainment is what they call it right now. Do you know how many of those are not rated TVMA? You can count them on, on one hand, if that. See, this world is all about taking sex and violence and and drugs and abuse and everything else and, and putting it out there to normalize it or if nothing less, to amuse us by it. But men, these are things that we shouldn't be amused by. We should be broken over them. Think of the cross, the betrayal, the beating, the flogging, the crown of thorns, the, the suffering. And draw the connection from the cross back to sin. And now draw the connection from the cross back to your sin. That it was your anger that put Christ on the cross. Your lust that put him there. Your road rage that put him there. Your uh, disagreements and arguments and fights with your wife in patience and failure to love her well that put Christ on the cross. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you, verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Amen to that. By canceling the record of death that stood against us. Yes, and with its legal demands. This he set aside, sweeping it under the rug. That's not what it says, is it? It says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
in youth groups, there's often this thing where you, it's a cutesy thing where there's a cross up on stage and they tell the kids, come up and, and nail a sin to the cross. The problem is there was a savior on the cross when that record of debt that stood against us was nailed to the cross. It wasn't an empty cross. Jesus was there suffering and feeling the pain such that three times in Gethsemane, he pled with God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's the weight of our sin that we should feel. God didn't sweep our sins under the carpet and far be it from us to sweep our sins under the carpet. We need to deal with them. And as we deal with them, we need to be mindful of the price that was paid so that we don't have to be hung publicly on display for everybody. Mindful of the price that was paid so that we can reconcile with God by confessing and repenting and being forgiven and restored. We need to feel the weight of the fall. This tragic picture of Rizpah mourning her sons as they decayed before her. It should produce in us not only this desire to feel the weight of the fall, but also this desire to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, yes? We should say, I don't want there to be sin in my life that I have to continually come and confess and repent of. I don't want to dishonor the Lord. The, the price that was paid for my sin is too high. I want to live a life that's all about God's glory. And that's where our, our chapter shifts now in the remainder of it. It says in verse 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel. <clears throat> Pardon me. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Hey, I got this new weapon. What a better way to, to baptize it than with the blood of the Israelite king. That's what he's thinking to himself. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. I think this is kind of humorous in our text here. Then David's men swore to him, uh, David, you know what? Maybe you should just hang out back at the palace from now on. You should stay home. We'll make sure that you've got a good accountability partner circle around you to make sure that Bathsheba thing doesn't happen again. But you know what? You got your AARP card in the mail recently. It's probably better that you just stay home. We'll take care of the fighting, Right? And so they send David back because they say, lest the, the lamp of Israel be quenched. They knew that it would be devastating for Israel, for David to be killed in battle. They didn't want that. And so they send the king back home. But there's four men that I want us to pay attention to in this passage. One of them we know, Abishai, right? We've seen Abishai before. Abishai's a warrior. He's one of David's right-hand hand men. He's, he's an eager warrior. He's a, a guy that's always willing to, to stand up and defeat the enemy. And he does so here on behalf of the king. But then there's three others. Pick back up in verse 18. It says, After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite. We all know Sibachai, right? It's probably in the running for one of your sons that you had. He struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elchanan, the son of Jar Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite. This is a different Goliath, okay? Let's not get all excited and say, well, look, there's another textual error here because here's Goliath. No, did you name your child after somebody that you admired? Yes, that's not new, okay? That's not a, an American invention. 
And so here you have sometime after the death of Goliath, another descendant of the giants named Goliath. Okay, let's not panic about this. This is a different Goliath, okay? And this time, this is a guy that named Elchanan kills. This man's shaft of a spear was like a weaver's beam. And there again was war at Gath. Now the, the Philistines are like, look, Gob is not working out for us. Let's shift things. So they go to Gath where there was a man again of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. I don't know if that helped him or hurt him as a warrior, but it was enough that it was noticeable, right? So it's recorded in the text. 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother. So Jonathan is David's nephew, struck him down. These four, including the giant that Abishai killed, were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. But think about these men, okay? Specifically, think about three of these men. Sibekai, Elhanan, and Jonathan. Do you know anything about these men outside of 2 Samuel chapter 21? No. Nothing. And yet they are recorded in the inspired word of God all the way through to now we sit here this morning reading about them so many thousands of years later. These three men, why are they here? Here's why I think they're here. Because these were three men that were passionate and zealous for the glory of God. And God was going to honor them for that. There were men, there were these giants, there were the Philistines that were coming to do battle against Israel. And I, I believe even though it, it's only said in verse 21 that, that the giant that Jonathan killed was taunting Israel, I think all of these men were probably taunting Israel. The way that Goliath had, you remember back with David and Goliath? And David was so incensed that anyone would, would taunt the people of God and, and thereby taunt God himself that he was willing to go out there with a the sling and a stone and, and, and put the man to death. I think we see the same thing with Sibachai, Elhanan, and with Jonathan. And so these men charge out and they go to battle. Why? Because they're so consumed with the glory of God that they are going to stand up and they are going to do what they have to do to make sure that God's glory is promoted, that God's glory is defended. Man, let's be like these men. Let's be like Sibachai, Elhanan, and Jonathan, so our final point this morning, it's this. Care most about God's glory. Care most about God's glory. These men went to battle, putting their lives on the line because God's glory had been challenged, because God's glory had been undermined, and they weren't going to stand for it. Even if it cost their own lives, they were going to go into battle in, on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of his name. So as we think about our lives, we're not going to have giants that are going to come and taunt you. I, at least I, I don't assume we will. But you are going to have situations where God's glory is impugned. You're going to have conversations at work with coworkers where they're talking about things that you know are dishonoring and displeasing to the Lord. What are you going to do in that situation? Especially if, not just especially if, but if they know that you're a believer, that you profess Christ, what sort of witness are you leaving for them? Are you stopping the conversation saying, guys, we, let's talk about something else. We don't need to be speaking about these things. We don't need to be talking about these things. I, I love it. I've got a young man in, in third nine who, who's in a, a place in his job and he said, he came to me 
a couple of weeks ago, he said, Pastor PJ, it's so hard because there's just so much profanity there. And I just, I don't like it. It grates against me because it's dishonoring to the Lord. Man, we should all be there, right? Or we've already talked about entertainment. At home, you come home after a long day, you sit down with your wife and you turn on the television. What, what are you going to camp out on? Are you going to care most about God's glory in that situation? See, we can't shrink back or, or be ashamed, men. We read about that again this morning in, in God's word and in our daily Bible reading as well. Jesus said, if you shrink in shame from me, I'm going to shrink in shame for you. If, if you're not going to acknowledge me before men, I'm not going to acknowledge you before God. And so we, we need to be men who are like these three that do care most about God's glory, that are willing to, to stand up, that are willing to, to put ourselves in some uncomfortable situations in order to fight for the glory of God, to fight for the honor of God, and to put an end to things that dishonor him. Be it at work or with your family, or just even in the world, what are the conversations like that you get into when you're in line at the DMV or you're in line at the, the grocery store? Are they conversations that glorify and honor God? Your prayer life. Are you praying that God would glorify himself? That his glory would be magnified in our country? That his glory would be magnified in our leaders? That his glory would be magnified in this world? How about evangelism? Are you caring most about God's glory by going out and seeing lost, saved? That's one of the greatest ways for us to glorify God, to share the gospel, to be used by him to see the, the scales of blindness fall from the eyes of the lost and see somebody put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's going out and killing the giant right there. Who are you pursuing in evangelism? Easter's right around the corner. We, we've been trying to, to, to soft toss for everybody and say, here's resources for you to go out and invite people to church. You know what Pastor Mike does on Good Friday, that he brings the gospel. Find somebody, grab them, invite them, say, hey, I want you to be there. You have, if nothing else, you'll be entertained, right? By Pastor Mike's presentation on a Good Friday. But I'm praying that you're gonna get saved. God's glory. Again, we're not going into battle, but, but there's a spiritual warfare going on, isn't there? We need to daily care most about his glory. It, personally, in the way that I conduct my life, right? I, I don't want to be sinning and sweeping things under the rug. We've looked at what the consequences of that are with, with the cross. And then we've looked at what our responsibility is, right? That we need to confess and repent from our sins. So personally, I need to care most about God's glory by making sure that I've battened down the hatches in my life, that, that I'm living a life that honors the Lord to the best of my ability, to the best of my knowledge. But then also we need to be defending the glory of the Lord in public. We need to be going out and making sure that we are caring most about God's glory and that everybody that we come into contact with knows that we care most about God's glory. Again, there's no cheat days in the sanctified life. We can't grab that worldly Snickers bar and think it doesn't matter because we'll just hit the spiritual disciplines harder tomorrow. That sin, all of our sin, needs to be reconciled. And praise God that the, the greatest reconciliation took place at the cross. 
The the reconciling of us between enemies and being sons of God took place at the cross. However, just like with your kids, when they they sin against you, there's a break in your, your fellowship with them and your relationship with them. When we sin against God, there's a break in our relationship with him, and that needs to be reconciled. So let's do that. Let's confess, let's repent, and let's press on with a renewed zeal for God's glory like Sibachai, Elchanan, and Jonathan. Let's be men like that. Let's pray together. Father God, we are grateful, thankful for the cross. God, so much, Lord, it's, it's, we could just pray that over and over and over again until you return. God, thank you for the cross. Without that, Lord, none of this matters at all. Without that, we're going to be hung. We're going to be strung up, but, but not just physically, Lord, for all of eternity in, in separation from you under your, your wrath your divine judgment. Lord, I pray that if any of us have fallen prey to the same sin and error of Israel and swept some of our sin under the rug, that you would bring that to light so that we could bring our sins to the light, so that we could confess them and to repent from them so that, Lord, our relationship with you here on earth might be restored or that, that we might continue to grow in our intimacy and knowledge of you so that your hand of blessing might be upon our lives here and now. God, help us to be men that are consumed with that end, consumed with your glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that we should do everything for the glory of God. God, help us to be men that are so mindful of that, that are not distracted by things in life. Men so consumed with the glory of God that we can't even take our daily commute to work without thinking about, okay, how am I glorifying God in the way that I'm about to conduct myself on the road? That we can't even sit down for lunch in the midst of a busy and chaotic day and shovel food into our mouth to make our next appointment without thinking to ourselves, okay, how am I going to glorify God through the way that I enjoy the food that he's provided for me right now? That we can't return home at night to our families without thinking to ourselves before we walk in that door, okay, Lord, how am I going to glorify you in the way that I love my wife and my children tonight? God, may we be that type of man, consumed with your glory. Lord, again, we thank you so much for Christ. Thank you so much for the cross. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.